Hello, my name is Kristen Smith, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of the Sight Black Women Podcast. Today we're celebrating Juneteenth, the anniversary of the day when Union soldiers arrived in Texas to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation and free all remaining enslaved people on June 19, 1865. Across the country, but especially here in Texas, Juneteenth is one of the hallmarks of African-American culture and heritage. And as we continue to mourn the inexcusable killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers this Memorial Day, this year's Juneteenth celebrations across the country are bittersweet. For those who may not know, George Floyd grew up in Houston, just a few hours from where I'm based here in Austin, Texas. He also grew up in one of the first communities to consecrate the celebration of Juneteenth. So this year, it seems especially important that we not only celebrate Juneteenth as a commemoration of our liberation from the bondage of slavery, but also mark today as a reminder of the struggle that lies before us. To help us understand this history and its legacy, we have the pleasure of talking with historian Dr. Melissa Stuckey. Dr. Melissa Stuckey is Assistant Professor of African American History at Elizabeth City State University in North Carolina. She is a specialist in early 20th century Black activism and a scholar committed to engaging the public in important conversations about African American history. She is the author of several magazine and journal articles, including Bully Indian Territory, Exercising Freedom in the All Black Town, published in 2017 in the Journal of African American History. Melissa Stuckey is currently completing her first book entitled All Men Up, Seeking Freedom in the All-Black Town of Bowley, Oklahoma, which interrogates the Black freedom struggle in Oklahoma as it took shape in the state's largest all-Black town. Melissa has been awarded several prestigious grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Institute for Museum and Library Services, and the National Park Service for her work seeking ways to preserve Northeastern North Carolina's Rosenwald School history. She is also a contributing historian on the NEH-funded Free and Equal Project in Beaufort, South Carolina, which interprets the story of Reconstruction for a national and international audience. In addition, she is Senior Historical Consultant to the Coltrane Group, a nonprofit organization in Oklahoma committed to helping these towns survive in the 21st century. Dr. Melissa Stuckey earned her bachelor's degree from Princeton University and her PhD from Yale University. Welcome, Dr. Stuckey. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. This is a true honor. Uh, I've been following Sight Black Women since its very beginning. And uh, yeah, I'm just really honored to be a part of the program. I think, you know, we tried to, uh, we've been trying to get you here to record on Juneteenth for for a while. And I think that it's apropos that we were able to get you on the program for this year for Juneteenth, because there's just so much going on. I think I want us to start because many of our listeners, um, we have listeners from all over the world. And so many of them aren't even aware of what Juneteenth is. So can you tell us a little bit about Juneteenth as a celebration and a little bit about its history? Yes. Um, If you don't mind, I would like to go back a little bit to think about Juneteenth in the context of African-American people celebrating their emancipation from slavery, uh, which is how we come to a Juneteenth. Uh, But Juneteenth is actually part of a family, I guess you could say, of 
emancipation celebration days that African-Americans across the country have created and uh, made their own and participated in uh, since 1862. So uh, anyone who uh, has ever attended church on, for example, December 31, New Year's Eve, for watch night services has participated, even if they did not know it, in a commemoration of an emancipation celebration, an African-American celebration of emancipation. Uh, And that is probably the most widespread uh, nationally uh, commemoration of celebrations. And what I love about watch night is that when we think about Juneteenth and the way it's spread from Texas to the rest of the country over the, these most recent years is we can look to watch night as a, um, as a, a predecessor in that kind of spread. So watch night, um, represented African-Americans, uh, waiting for January 1 when the Emancipation Proclamation would come to be law. But we know that uh, in places that were not yet under union control, that uh, African-Americans would still be enslaved. So we have this wave after January 1, 1863 of African-Americans becoming free as the union takes over space. And that's why we get Juneteenth, which is two full years after the Emancipation Proclamation uh, was written and uh, and released, where African-Americans who were enslaved in Texas were finally granted the opportunity by the Union Army to hear the, the Emancipation Proclamation read and know then that they were free. So that happened on June 19, 1865. And am I and am I correct in in uh, my understanding of history um, when I uh, the way that I've been taught it is that um, Texas was the last place where uh, African Americans in the United States just basically found out about the Emancipation Proclamation, and so part of the reason why Juneteenth is so important is because that's pretty much the last wave of African Americans to really receive the the news of the Emancipation Proclamation. Is that correct? That is mostly true. I think that we could probably look to Indian Territory, which is where Oklahoma is located, and maybe see pockets of um, irregularity surrounding the reading of the Emancipation Proclamation and its meaning. And and part of that is because at that time, um, what is now the state of Oklahoma was not part of the U.S. as a state, right? It was uh, separate Indian nations that would eventually have their own kinds of treaties made post-Civil War with the United States that formally freed their slaves and uh, made them citizens. But I think for the purposes of thinking about the larger picture, yes, we can look at Texas and say this is the last place. So much so that uh, during the war, um, when slave owners are trying to hold on to their slave property, they are constantly moving their slaves. So they're moving them from the coast where the Union navies are taking control of coasts, uh, moving them to the interior. So they're moving them saying, you know, my people are from Sumter County, South Carolina, which is in the interior of South Carolina. They would move people from the low country, from Beaufort, from Charleston, et cetera, into the interior to keep them away from the Union Army. Uh, And many believed that Texas uh, was going to uh, 
separate itself from the United States permanently. So uh, many people who were able moved their slaves to Texas. So uh, with the real intention of trying to hold on, like Texas was the last stand, so to speak. And that is part of why um, Juneteenth comes so late, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's really fascinating, uh, you know, as as a scholar who studies Blackness in, in the African diaspora generally, I think it's fascinating to me um, the way that our emancipation here in the United States was dragged out for so long. And I often, um, when I teach my students and I'm talking to my students about emancipation, I'm talking to my students about the history of slavery, and they often have a lot of confusion over when slavery ended. And I think some folks don't realize that that confusion was by design, right? That confusion came out of the ways that slavery, the end of slavery in the United States was, was elusive and was slippery and, and did, as you mentioned just now, it was spread over these three years. And so that's why it's hard for people to try to figure out, well, when exactly did this happen? <laughs> it's like, yes, it's the Emancipation Proclamation, but if you don't think of it, as you mentioned, so 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 eloquently at the beginning of the podcast, it, if you don't think about it as a suite, right? As a collection of actions that are happening over these three, the span of three years, then you miss a lot of the reason why um, emancipation is such a, a very difficult and fraught topic for African-Americans in the U.S. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, um, the Confederacy formally surrendered to the Union Army, ending the war in April of 1865. And yet there were enslaved people in the state of Texas, and I'm sure in other places as well, who were deliberately not informed that they were free. So even though the war had officially ended, the war was still really being fought, right? It takes the Union Army descending upon Texas and saying, this is done, we're finished, these people are free, for them to accept that that was the case. It's just a really fascinating, fascinating history. And, and I'm, you know, I'm just anxious to hear more about your insight from it. I know that you started by talking about watch night services. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, I grew up in the black church. I grew up going to watch night. No matter how sleepy I was, I was there on the on the pew next to my mom <laughs> taking a nap, bringing mm-hmm. in the new year with that great African-American tradition. Um, But that tradition also has a history in South Carolina. And can you talk a little bit about that and about the history of those watch night services beyond just the the East Coast and beyond the Northeast? Yes. Well, South Carolina uh, and the Beaufort, uh, the South Carolina Low Country in particular, were the beginnings of watch night. And um, let me give you a little by the way, uh, since you are from Washington, D.C., there is a special day that you probably know more about than anyone else uh, amongst your listeners, uh, April 16, that is celebrated as oh, Emancipation yes. Day in D.C. <laughs> so we should definitely put a little bit of a, um, a note about that later. Um But Buford County, South Carolina, is where uh, the Union Army took its first foothold 
in uh, Confederate territory. And it's a really interesting place because there were no battles in Beaufort County. Uh, The slave owners just left. They were completely outnumbered by African-Americans, the enslaved population, and with the overwhelming forces, they just got up and left. So this was a very peaceful transition. And it's one of the reasons why um, the National Park Service has um, decided to make this a monument, uh, make that whole area a monument to reconstruction. And, um, you know, one of the projects that I'm working on is creating um, historical tours and that kind of thing so that people can learn about reconstruction, in part because uh, you would not be surprised to, to hear me say that reconstruction as a period in American history has been terribly maligned. Uh, Historians talk about the idea that, um, you know, the Union may have won the war, but the South won the peace, right? Or the the Confederacy won the peace. And that's where we get into these conversations about Confederate monuments even. But we're talking things like segregation, disfranchisement, violence against African-Americans, all of those kinds of things being endemic to uh, to the American South. So um, we are trying to recapture in Beaufort the history of possibility that was there and being practiced. And uh, people were striving to make freedom real with this Reconstruction Era Park. So uh, recreating that history and bringing that history to uh, the general American public. As part of that, uh, Watch Night January 1, 1863, December 31, 1862, was an anticipated moment. The Union Army was already occupied there. And um, the reason why January 1 is so important is that Lincoln had already written the Emancipation Proclamation. He wasn't up all night on you know the 31st writing this. It had already been issued or written, and it was supposed to be you know coming to effect on January 1. So we have this space um, in 1862 where uh, we've got these free people um, working and living in Beaufort County. And they are simply waiting for this moment where they're going to hear this thing come into official law, into official act, into official effect. And that is why there could be a watch night tradition. They were anticipating it and they were already living as free people because their slave owners had already evacuated and left the space. Um, and, uh, because it is that official date after the civil war is fully over, it's a date that is adopted by African-Americans throughout the American South. And I think part of the way that it's spread really is through church organization. Uh, the number of African-American, independent African-American churches of the Baptist tradition of the Methodist tradition, et cetera. Um, they, these people were gathering, they were meeting across borders uh, and sharing and and it's basically organizing themselves. So if they're organizing themselves, part of what they want to do is say, who, who are we as a people? What do we celebrate? What are our values? What are our traditions? And it makes perfect sense that the reading of the emancipation proclamation, the thing that legally frees enslaved people would be a moment of celebration and that anticipation, that importance of preparing for freedom, of witnessing the transition from slavery, 11.59 p.m., to freedom, midnight, 
is a real profound one. So I, I would argue that that is why Watch Night has proliferated and that's the meaning behind it. No, I think that's that's so fascinating. And I know you mentioned um, April 16th, which is Emancipation Day in Washington, D.C., but there are also other emancipation celebrations. Can you talk a little bit about those celebrations and how they emerged over time after the original after after the kind of original um, moment of the Emancipation Proclamation and it, and its outspreading? Yes. So real quick. um Emancipation Day in D.C., this April 16 date, is extraordinary because it's so early. It's April 16, 1862. Uh, So, you know, we talked about the messiness of emancipation. Abraham Lincoln was elected president as someone who was anti-slavery, yes, but pro-union first. He really wanted to do whatever it is that he could do to assure slave owners that his election would not spell the end of them being slave owners, right? Like he would choose the union over slavery any day. Uh, and, you know, we could have all kinds of conversations about that. And I do in my, in my classrooms, but that really was his position. And we know that after his election, immediately after his election, South Carolina secedes from the union followed by these other Southern states. So that's out the window right away. And we get embroiled in this civil war that becomes a war over slavery because of enslaved people's actions, their choices. But, you you know, um, but Abraham Lincoln does become more actively someone who is going to push for the end of slavery as a result of the war and as a result of the actions of African-American people who are convinced from day one that this is going to be a war that ends slavery. Uh, As a result of that, one of the earlier acts that Lincoln uh, creates or, or passes or signs is called the Compensated Emancipation Act. And that is for Washington, D.C. You can imagine that. How do you have slavery in the nation's capital when the nation is in the middle of a war against slavery, right? So in order to appease these slave owners, these erstwhile slave owners, uh, the Compensated Emancipation Act is passed, meaning that they get some financial compensation for losing their slaves. So enslaved people in Washington, D.C. experience freedom beginning April 16, 1862 for that reason. So that's a really... Um, It's an early moment. It's a unique moment. And it's why uh, you guys in D.C. have that day, you know, to celebrate and observe it. It's a really kind of wonderful thing. Uh, In addition to that, um, and this, again, speaks to that messiness of of freedom. uh, This is something I just learned about recently, that Florida also has one of these later Emancipation Day celebrations. Um, Again, remembering that. the, the Confederacy surrendered in April of 1865, but it's not until May of 1865 that the Union Army is able to take possession of the city of Tallahassee in Florida. And it's only then in May, uh, on May 20th, when the Emancipation Proclamation is read, that the enslaved people uh, in Florida are you know made aware of their freedom and therefore celebrate their freedom on May 20th. Uh, and in Indian territory, what's now Oklahoma, 
Emancipation Day had another day. And I, when I started to research my then dissertation, I was really intrigued by the number of Emancipation Days that I saw being advertised in Black newspapers, Emancipation Day celebrations. One of those was August 4th, and that celebrates August 4th, 1865, which has everything to do with the fact that this was not a state at the time, but rather was a collection of Indian nations. And on August 4th, 1865, the Creek Nation uh, recognized their former slaves as citizens. So that is the day that they celebrated emancipation from slavery. And I know that for some of your listeners, it, it may come as a surprise to learn that there were several Native American nations that participated in uh, slavery, the kind of slavery that you think about when you think about the American South. So those of you who have heard of the Trail of Tears, right, the Cherokee Trail of Tears, where the Cherokee Indians were forced west, forced into what is now Oklahoma, that's a part of their story. Um, there were five nations of Indians that were based in the American South, the Cherokees, the Creek Nation, uh, the Seminole Nation in Florida, and the Choctaw and Chickasaw Nations. If you think about the area between North Carolina and Florida through Alabama moving west, that is the general sort of uh, the general contours of the territory that these Native American nations inhabited. They did all kinds of things to try to hold on to their homes uh, in the wake of American encroachment. Um, they created a written alphabet. They intermarried with white Southerners, and some of them uh, became slave owners, and they became traditional plantation slave owners. Others became slave owners in ways that are less that traditional plantation style and much more of a of an intimate, localized, small farmer style. But slavery is slavery nonetheless. We're still talking about humans as capital. Uh, and in the 1830s, when Andrew Jackson forcefully removed these Native Americans from the American South, they were pushed into what was then called Indian Territory, and that's the eastern half of the state of Oklahoma. So they brought with them their slave property, right? So slavery was firmly established in Indian Territory, not universally practiced, meaning everyone did not practice it, but it was part of the territory. And during the Civil War, the five civilized tribes actually formally allied themselves with the American South, right? So with the Confederacy. And that means that they fought formally for the Confederate Army. Now on the ground, history is super messy. And you can probably find or identify as many uh, Native Americans who fought for the Union as fought for the Confederacy and others who said, this is not our fight, right? So this is not a neat history, but because of this formal alliance with the Confederacy, there is a reconstruction in Indian territory that is similar in some ways, but also quite different in other ways from that reconstruction uh, in the American South. But the point of August 4th is that it commemorates the moment, the day when the former slaves of the Creek Nation in Indian Territory are recognized as free people and as citizens of the Creek Nation. So that is their Emancipation Day. 
And um, I hope we get to talk about how that emancipation, that moment of getting full citizenship, which included the rights to the soil, right? The right to use land uh, is what attracts Southerners from Texas in particular, but other, from other Southern states as well to Oklahoma. And uh, then uh, allows us to have this really interesting uh, intermingling of these former slaves of Native Americans and Southern African Americans, particularly Texans, that in, uh, that will result in lots of different things, but also resulting in the moving of Juneteenth out of Texas and into Oklahoma. So uh, that history is such an important history, and I think it's one that people don't understand or don't know about. And and again, this is why Juneteenth is such a very complex and important date for African Americans, because there's such layering to our history and such such complexity behind this question of emancipation. And I think your your conversation about Florida brings us back again to Texas and to Juneteenth. And so what were the early celebrations of Juneteenth? What did they look like? How did they come about? And how do they tie us back to Houston in particular, where George Floyd was from? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, you've got to think about uh, the way we as a diverse group of Black folks celebrate today and know and trust and really embrace the fact that so many of the ways that we celebrate today in those summertime celebrations look awful like Juneteenth back then, right? So in the rural places, places that are near swamps and lakes and other waterways, we're going to have fish fries, right? We're going to have crab boils and crawfish boils and oyster shucking and all those other wonderful kinds of seafood-related food celebrations. Um, In more urban areas like Houston, we're going to see uh, parading and uh, maybe more quote unquote middle class kinds of celebration celebrating that are still you know focused around food and dance and music and prayer and oratory, uh, but may have a different kind of dress and a different maybe a different kind of of music. Uh, but their joy, right? They are the epitome of black joy, uh, the kind of thing you have at your family reunion, but it's the whole city or the whole county together. Uh, so I think that we need to really just sort of, you know, know and trust and have and have faith that we are living the traditions of our ancestors when we gather in these moments of black joy. Uh, in Houston, I've been able to see some wonderful, amazing archival images uh, from their parades. They paraded in the late 19th century, lot, you know, flowered buggies with uh, you know, beautiful young women from the community representing their neighborhoods. Uh, there was a Miss Juneteenth contest, and one of them would be elect, you know, win the contest if they were, you know, whoever raised the most amount of money. One of the most important elements of Juneteenth in Houston uh, was the was Emancipation Park, and that is something to really kind of hold on to and think about. Emancipation Park uh, came into existence 
because after emancipation, Black freedom was profoundly limited within the United States. Freedom of movement, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, even if we're thinking about uh, violences that were still visited upon today, the presumption of innocence, right? All of these things are uh, uh, denied African-American people through law, segregation law in particular, when we're thinking about freedom of movement, assembly, and association. And there were no parks, no public spaces in the city of Houston and just about anywhere else uh, for African-American people to gather. So a group of church people in Houston's third ward came together and purchased uh, several acres of land and on that land established a park, right? Like such a simple and yet profound and important thing, a place for people to gather and promenade and relax and celebrate. Uh, And that park was called Emancipation Park, which still exists today in Houston's Third Ward. Uh, And one of the people who helped to create Emancipation Park was a man named Jack Yates. He uh, was a former slave who was actually free before the Civil War, according to the accounts that I've read, but his wife and his children were enslaved and they were being moved to Texas from Virginia. And rather than be parted from his family, he chose to put himself in slavery again and move to Texas where he could not really be a free man and uh, a free black man before the war and certainly not, you know, be a free black man with his own family uh, before the war. So he underwent slavery once again in order to remain with his family. After emancipation, they moved to Houston where he started a church. And it was under his leadership that Emancipation Park, uh, his leadership and others, that Emancipation Park came to be. Now, why do I mention Jack Yates? Well, anyone who listened or watched uh, the funeral for George Floyd in Houston last week had to have heard two things, right? Uh, Third Ward, which is where George Floyd grew up, and also Yates High School in Houston, where he graduated from high school. And for me, as a historian, um, hearing that name and knowing that it was familiar and then going back into my files and saying, wait a minute, uh, this school is named after Jack Yates. And therefore, there's this relationship that we, again, if we think about how we embody our past and live our past, there's this relationship between Black freedom, Emancipation Park, the dreams of former slaves, and George Floyd and all those other young people who grew up in Third Ward and and graduated from Jack Yates High School, right? So our history is right there at our fingertips, but I sometimes wonder how much of it we know, right? I, I know that I went to schools named after people, and I don't always know, I didn't always learn who those people were. So it's my deep hope that uh, the young people in Jack Yates High School are getting a chance to learn about uh, not only Jack Yates, but all the things that made their community so foundational to Black freedom and so important to Black freedom. It's such an important history and, and 
just moves me when I hear that because I think that we are robbed of our history. We are not taught where our, where our heritage comes from, what the where the names of things in our communities come from, and I think that it's it's a shame that that knowledge is often lost. And I think it's extremely important now that the world is really still mourning George Floyd and his tragic killing, that we begin to think about how the killing of George Floyd is very much wrapped up in our heritage, in our history, in the legacies of slavery, in the ways that we are still haunted by slavery, in the ways that we, our emancipation has not been fully realized. And yeah. I think that I've been to Emancipation Park a lot of times. Um, it, you, we, you and I have a mutual friend that lives down in Houston. I think I've been to Emancipation Park with you at some time. And mm-hmm. I've been to Juneteenth celebrations many times. And I think that part of what is extremely powerful and why, you know, for those that are wondering how, how is it that a death, even this tragic, can can move an entire country and can move in the world. Um, it, it is because when we think about George Floyd, we are thinking about him and the unique contributions that he made to this world and his family, but we're also thinking about how he is so deeply connected with all of us and how he is so deeply connected with, with our heritage and our communities. And so I, I appreciate you sharing that story because I know when when you told it to me, it was it was one that really touched me and really made me um, think how special this year's Juneteenth celebration is. And, and I think that brings us to, to the research that you've done over the years. Um, you spent over a decade uh, researching Black towns and particularly Boley, Oklahoma. And so I wanted to see, to have you talk a little bit about how your work in Oklahoma ties back to Texas to everything that we've been talking about, what does what happens with Juneteenth as it moves moves to Oklahoma, and and what is Oklahoma what is the significance of Oklahoma of Oklahoma in all of this? Yeah, um, before I respond to that, and I'm excited to respond to that uh, because it really does bring us back to joy um, in thinking about Black freedom. But there's one other note. Uh, about George Floyd that really moves me as a historian and someone who really thinks about the relationship between the past and the present. And that's Dred Scott. Many people, I I haven't heard anyone talk about this yet, but uh, I visited uh, St. Paul in Minneapolis a few years ago. And while there, I visited uh, a U.S. facility that Dred Scott lived in when he was uh, owned by a U.S. Army medical doctor. For those of your listeners who don't know, Dred Scott sued for his freedom in uh, a case that became known as the Dred Scott decision, where a Supreme Court justice said that uh, he had no rights to freedom and that African Americans had no rights that white men were bound to respect. It's known as the Tawny decision. Uh, And this was a decision that really solidified America was going to be, in 1850, a slave nation. But Dred Scott made his case for being free because he lived in Minnesota, Mm. or he lived right outside of Minnesota. He had been enslaved in St. Louis, Missouri, 
And that slave owner brought him right outside of Minnesota uh, at this military base. And that was the tenant that he he issued his case for freedom on, uh, was that I lived as a free man in a free territory. Uh, so it's, to me, thinking about Minneapolis and St. Paul area in Minnesota and this horror that uh, George Floyd experienced there, moving from Houston to the upper Midwest, uh, it's so intimately tied with all of these questions of freedom for Black people. And it's the limits, the, the geographic limits, the legal limits, the cultural limits, and how uh, we can be hemmed into this catch-22 of no matter where we go, no matter what we do, the struggle to breathe. Right? The struggle to breathe as free people is constantly contested. And you know, it's something that's been sitting on my heart for the past two weeks because I just don't think anyone else has talked about it. Or I haven't heard anyone talking about it. That uh, there's this connection between Dred Scott and George Floyd with this geography and with this idea of moving, uh, moving from Texas or, or Missouri into um, places that are not necessarily touched by the stain of slavery except that they are, right? So I, th- I really wanted to mention that. That is, that is such an important and thoughtful insight. And I really appreciate you bringing that to our attention because I haven't heard anybody talk about it. And I think it's so important. Um, I think that this is one of the great historical terms in our lifetimes, if not our entire history. And those connections through time and through space are also what historians down the road are going to reflect on when they think about the meaning of this moment. Right. And I think that that's such an important point. And it's, it's, it's one that I hope that we all can continue to reflect on and to think about. And I know that you wanted to tell us a little bit more about Oklahoma as well. Can you talk about Oklahoma? Can you talk about what the significance of Oklahoma is in all of this and the significance of your work um, and particularly this question of black joy? Because I think that Juneteenth is quintessentially a joyous occasion. And despite everything that's going on, just like our ancestors, I'm hoping that today on Juneteenth, we're able to find a bit of black joy amidst all of the pain that we are suffering right now. Yes. Wow. So Juneteenth comes to Oklahoma because of Texas migration and African-Americans from Texas moving into Indian territory, seeking more freedom, more freedom than they could experience in that segregated Jim Crow world of the American South. There's a whole long story about that that I won't get into so much, but just know that Indian territory was federal territory, right? So it was not an American state uh, in the early 1900s. Uh, It became a state in 1907. And before statehood, it was subject to federal law. So there was no legal segregation and there was no legal disfranchisement of African-Americans in Indian territory. In addition to that, 
uh, I mentioned earlier that there are former slaves in Indian territory, people who were enslaved by Native Americans. And in particular, in the Creek Nation, part of their citizenship was the ability, the free access to land as citizens of the Creek Nation. Um, A couple decades after emancipation, the federal government starts to work towards making this territory a state. And I'm saying one territory, but we're really talking about two. Indian Territory, which is the eastern part of today's Oklahoma, and Oklahoma Territory, which is the western part. And the federal government is doing everything they can to set this place up for statehood. They are granting railroads access to build railroad tracks. They are uh, working towards privatizing land so that land is not held in common by the entire Indian nation, but rather by individuals, which is how Americans understand land. Uh, So the land access that these former slaves of Native Americans had becomes uh, formalized as land ownership through all of these processes. At the same time, in the American South, one of the biggest barriers towards experiencing true freedom that African Americans have is that they are being denied systemically, systematically access to land and being forced into being sharecroppers. And that's on top of all the other kinds of discriminations that we you know, have talked about uh, through Jim Crow. Uh, so they observe, keenly observe that there are Black people, right, African-descended people in Indian territory who are becoming landowners. And it is an incredibly attractive set of circumstances. Black landowners in a place that Black people can vote and a place that Black people are not legally segregated. Uh, And there is a movement to establish all Black towns in Oklahoma by these African-Americans from the American South. Uh, So there's a general migration of African-American people from the late 19th century into the early 20th century of African-Americans into Indian territory and into Oklahoma territory. Some of them settle in the big cities, right? So they're going to settle in Oklahoma City. They're going to settle in Tulsa, for example. But others are going to move to one of more than two dozen all-Black towns. Uh, my own research focuses on Bowley, Oklahoma, which was the largest of these black towns. And uh, one of their early events to attract other people to the town was a major Juneteenth celebration that they called the Bowley Rodeo. There's a modern Bowley Rodeo that I got to take you to one day. Uh, it happens every year, Memorial Day. Uh, But this very first one was Juneteenth, right? And it doesn't say in big, bold letters, Juneteenth, but the date was June 19th, right? And it had all of the elements that you would expect of a Juneteenth celebration. There were parades, there was a band, there was good eating, there was food, there was music, uh, there were speeches, there was an oratorical contest, they even uh, had a merry-go-round, a carnival company bring in an, a merry-go-round, probably steam-powered. Uh, and there were baseball games and all kinds of other things. So this, you know, this big, fun country celebration that lasted three or four days and was designed to really say, 
to the people of the American South, come here, visit us, see what it's like when Black people control the public environment and you are free and safe and loved and desired. Uh, and it resulted in hundreds of people moving to Bowley over the course of the following couple of months. I've tracked it and I can track communities of people coming from Texas, caravans of people coming from Alabama, all of them moving towards Bowley. And you can imagine if you are a wealthy landowner relying on poor Black people to farm your land in these places, this is distressful, right? There's consternation that these, quote, Negroes are moving to Bowley. So I can even track some of those movements in newspapers of the era in Texas and in Alabama and in Louisiana, et cetera, that says, you know, eight families have started on their way to Bowley or something like that. So it's a really, it's a migration that is not uh, talked about in reference to the great migration. It precedes that. And it's a really rural migration uh, for farm folk, many who are not well-educated, moving from one farm area to another farm area. But in their, what they're seeing is it's a move from uh, a place that does not feel free, where they can't be fully free, into spaces where they can be fully free. And that is what Indian Territory represented at the time. Uh, Tulsa is also going to have or also had Juneteenth celebrations early on as well. And I mentioned that in particular because, uh, you know, we're in this really interesting moment, uh, as you've mentioned, where so many big, big um, issues in terms of race and American history are coming together. And, you know, the current president of the United States scheduled last week uh, a rally in Tulsa, and he scheduled this rally for June 19th. And uh, the, the ripple and the wave of response to this particular date was poignant, right? Because it people who know American history or who in particular American race history in Tulsa, uh, you know, given that there's, you know, recent television programming that has featured Tulsa uh, and there's been a truth and reconciliations kind of committee and work going on in Tulsa for a number of years. But people know two terms. They know Black Wall Street and they know the Tulsa race riot or what we're calling it now, the Tulsa massacre. Uh, And Black Wall Street was um, known as the Greenwood District. It was the Black side of Tulsa. And it was a wealthy side because there was so much money being made in Tulsa over oil, right? Uh, and it was a very stable part of the community. Um, and in 1921, the white people of Tulsa really attempted to destroy it on the rumor of an alleged incident between a white woman and an African-American man in an elevator. And, you know, the the details of that are super sketchy, but the fact of the matter is everything was an allegation and it was simply the idea that he touched her or that he looked at her funny, right? That was the allegation, point blank. Uh, but happening at the moment that it did after World War I, 
which is another topic that we should talk about in terms of Black freedom one day. But after, you know, happening in this moment after World War One, we can see it as what uh, historians call the Red Summer of 1919, which, you know, just like all these other events we're talking about, nothing is contained to one year, really, right? So African-Americans arming themselves to protect the life of a Black man being accused of a crime. And the result of that was... Uh, whites in Oklahoma, Tulsans and others participating in just laying flat through fire and gunfire, uh, the Greenwood section of Tulsa. So people have been really focused on that and how could Donald Trump or the current president, how could he choose Tulsa and the celebration of black freedom around also this time, uh, so near this commemoration of 1921 and the Tulsa Race Massacre. But I would want us to think a little bit about how we even get to 1921 and the Tulsa Race Massacre. And some of those things we can see in Tulsa uh, in the years before 1921 of a tightening or a uh, increased, uh, increased tension in uh, Tulsa between African-Americans and whites. Uh, I've seen some newspaper notices about Juneteenth in Tulsa, for example. Uh, In 1919, there's a a newspaper notice about the Juneteenth celebration that observed that, or or that informed me that uh, even though it was tradition for African-Americans to use a particular park in Tulsa, to celebrate Juneteenth. And it was literally the only day of the year that they were allowed to use this park. And yet, uh, somehow the park was double booked and a band was scheduled to perform there for white Tulsans. Interestingly enough, in 1919, when this discrepancy was discovered of the double booking the band concert was postponed, happened two days later. The very next year, 1920, literally 100 years from where we are today, the same thing happened, a double booking, right? But this time, even though this day, Juneteenth, was the only day that African Americans were allowed use of that park to celebrate Juneteenth, this double booking happens. And the African-American community is denied access to the park to celebrate Juneteenth. They are the ones who are forced to schedule their or to celebrate their Juneteenth celebration on a different day uh, in order for white Tulsans to enjoy a musical concert. So there's something happening there that we really need to think about in terms of the tightening of, of freedom, right, happening in Oklahoma at that time that's preceding the Tulsa race riot of the next year. Uh, If African-Americans are known to be able to use a particular park only on Juneteenth, and yet two years in a row, we can observe double bookings, which makes absolutely no sense, except for the fact that there is an effort to push them out of that space, to erase them from that space. Uh, And then, you know, in 1921, and obviously there are leaps there that that I have to work with and, and think about, you know, the whys of how we get there. But, uh, you know, the efforts to erase the African-American community of Tulsa during the Tulsa race riot, I think that all of those things, there's a relationship there that needs to be needled and prodded and thought about. Um, and then, you know, for this kind of thing to be mirrored in some ways uh, in 2020 with uh, the current president, 
announcing that he's going to have a rally on Juneteenth in this space in the midst of a moment. This isn't just any moment, right? This is, a, this is a moment where we've seen Americans across the nation and people across the globe descending into the streets, screaming for Black freedom, right? So how then, uh, I don't think that we can look at it as coincidental that we have this, um, this current president also choosing Juneteenth to try to override or uh, wash over an important symbol of Black freedom, an important symbol of Black joy by scheduling a rally on Juneteenth in Tulsa. Absolutely. I think that I'm just really struck by that story and the ways, that just, the, just the profound parallels um, and particularly the, the fact that in many ways, what the current president is doing is a double booking. And, and to me that I, I really hope to see, um, I hope that, I hope that you're going to write something on this because I think that it's something that the world needs to hear and needs to, needs to think about um, because otherwise we run the risk of reading these things as innocent coincidences. Right. Um, but what you what you remind us of are the ways that very uh, slights of hands and and small gestures have been used historically in order to disenfranchise and distance black people from our liberty. And I think that that's something that is just so important for us to remember right now at this moment where we are seeing, I mean, in our lifetime, an unprecedented um, national uprising that is clamoring for the right to Black life. And, and, and it's such an important history, Dr. Stuckey. I just really thank you for sharing that with us. I know we're coming to the end of our time and I can sit here with you many more hours, but I want to be respectful of our, your time and of our listenership's time. Um, we're going to definitely have to have you back and talk more with us about the, these histories and the work that you do. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us before we end the program for today? Yes. So quickly, and this is again about Black joy, right? Uh, we have two huge national holidays in the United States. Memorial Day, which is a day of recognizing and, and mourning war dead, and July 4th, which is the celebration of American independence. And I really want African-American people in particular, but the rest of the world in addition, to know that um, you know, some of our emancipation celebrations are very much about uh, our community, but others have either grown to be co-opted or embraced by a larger community and others that were really about another community we have adopted. And I just, I, with that malleability shows two things to me. One is the fact that we as African-American people are embedded within the entirety of the fabric of the United States of America. This is our land. We have shaped it. We have sweated, cried, and bled into its soil. We have shaped its culture in some ways uh, that are 
maybe more hidden. So Memorial Day, for example, was initially Decoration Day and was born in the low country of South Carolina as a day that people there during the war uh, decorated the cemeteries, the grave sites of war dead. It was co-created by free Black people in the midst of the war, right, and their union-related allies. So we should embrace Memorial Day as a celebration of Black freedom, as a commemoration of the blood that African Americans and others shed for Black people's freedom. It's it's not an abstract concept of freedom. It's not one to browbeat people on and say that, you know, someone died for your freedom, but it's really a true organic uh, uh, celebration and gratitude and moment of commemoration by African people, enslaved, formerly enslaved people that created Memorial Day. We did that. And I think that's really important for us to know and to shout from the rooftops. That's us. We, we were part of the creation of Memorial Day. I just think it's really profound for, for our listeners, you know, and of course, George Floyd was killed on Memorial Day. And so, again, we see this this history coming back full loop. But go, please finish. Yeah. So the other one is July 4th. Uh, you know, this is much more related to the American Revolution. But nonetheless, uh, free Black people after the Civil War in particular, they were heavily involved in July 4th celebrations. And what it reminds me of is the fact that we have a history of fighting for freedom that begins at the very beginning of the history of this nation. And uh, so our, our, the fact that we, you know, collectively, I think African-American people, we celebrate July 4th. It, it works with our work schedules to have that day off, right? But it's not just a day of hanging out, but it is a day of getting together and celebrating. And that we really, um, you know, even if it's not a date that was particularly created for us or by us, it's a date that we bring our culture to as Americans. And I think that we should fully embrace that element as well. Again, that's just such an important context and important history. And I'm always struck by the way that we have been uh, erased from the broader U.S. history in many ways. And and we have contributed to this country and we have built this country with our blood, sweat and tears. And yet this country does not always recognize that contribution. And I really appreciate you bringing that contribution back into the conversation and, and doing the hard work that you do. To, to chronicle our history and to make sure that we don't forget and to, to, to ensure that we, that the generations to come and the generations that are here now know exactly the significance of, of all that's going on in our lives. And so Dr. Stuckey, I just want to say thank you. Um, we've been talking to Dr. Melissa Stuckey, who is Assistant Professor of History at Elizabeth City State University. Thank you, Dr. Stuckey, for your time. And we appreciate you're coming on and, and sharing with us. Thank you so much for this time, Dr. Smith. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Site Black Women. Follow us at Site Black Women on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our new website, www.siteblackwomencollective.org. And remember, it's simple. Site Black Women. 
We theorize, we produce, we revolutionize the world. 